1: You're the mom, the maid, the keeper of the cookies. You do it all and you look good doing it. It's parenthood on a mother level. Here's your host, Denise Hanitka. Hey,
0: everybody, it's Denise and this is On a Mother Level. You're back for another episode. So glad you could join us today. One thing I have been doing now that I've been Zooming my interviews is I've been able to talk to some of my friends who live in different areas of the country. And so today I am talking with my friend Casey Cox. She lives down in Dallas and she is a nurse practitioner with a very important specialty. And so there were so many things that I could talk to her about. I kept it to an hour, but we could have gone on for much longer. She is gonna talk about how she recently got the COVID-19 vaccine, and I talked to her about some hesitations that you may have, and she gives her very qualified opinion about it. We also talk about a time in our lives in which she and I really bonded together, and that's when we were both starting our families. And she talks about some fertility issues that she had that you might find relatable in some different ways. And so I hope you will appreciate her story and her perspective on what she went through. Ultimately, it had a happy ending, and she now has a four-year-old daughter named Addison. And so we talk about that. The other thing that we get into, and I hope this is relatable for you, You might be one of those people who feels like your marriage needs a little help right now. Maybe you feel a little isolated at this time. And look, we all have a ton more stress on our relationships. And so Casey gives some advice about some things that are working for her in her marriage. I've known her husband for a long time because her husband and my husband, are best friends, have been since college, and so that's when I met Perry as well. So they both have really important and stressful jobs, and so what they are going through is going to be relatable to a lot of you, and so I hope that you will give that part a listen as well. At the end of this episode, I'm going to give my thoughts on The Bachelorette. I'm going to be doing it solo today because if you watch the episode, you know there's not much to say. That's actually a terrible tease for why you should listen to the end of the episode. But stick around for my bachelorette recap. It's at the end of the episode. As always, I would love it if you would go to my Instagram and give at onamotherlevel a follow. And you can join in. And I would love to hear your feedback on the episodes and any ideas that you have for guests moving forward. I am always all ears on what you want to see and what you want to hear out of this podcast. So this is on a mother level, and I want to introduce my friend Casey Cox, and we are going to start this episode. We're pulling cards today. We are using the Super Attractor deck, and so I picked a card that right off the bat felt relatable to me. So here we go. In stillness. I receive
1: in stillness. I receive. So for me, I think in stillness, I just receive peace. <laughs> there's not much stillness in the world right now, especially with everything that's been going on. It's kind of hard to get stillness. And with having uh, a four-year-old, there's not much stillness so. <laughs> in stillness. I just receive peace and trying to find just a peaceful way to be.
0: This week has been insane and especially, was it Wednesday night? I got home from work after everything that had happened that day and I could not stop the frantic scrolling. And I feel like that keeps happening to me this week is the frantic scrolling. And it's like, I don't know what I'm looking for when I scroll, but it's like, I'm looking for something that will make me feel still And it's making it worse. And obviously the answer is, Denise, put the stupid Facebook down. But particularly (laughs) right now, like the frantic scrolling has to stop. I need the stillness. But you want an
1: answer for, I think sometimes you just want an answer for why something like that happens. And so scrolling that someone's going to have a different perspective that might make it make sense because none of it makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, at least I find that's what I do when I start scrolling like that. I'm like, I'm finding just someone to make this make sense for me because it doesn't get more
0: upset or you have even more questions, (laughs) unfortunately. So that will be our word for the podcast today. Stillness in stillness Stillness. I receive. One thing that kind of has helped calm me a little bit is trying to like keep up with the workout routine. And I hear you guys have become a Peloton family. We are a Peloton family. (laughs) How do you like that? It's such like a wrong word to use, but kind of like a, like a little cult in itself. It's a little society. You know what? It is a little
1: cult. It is, um... (laughs) You know, it's one of those things that it was back in March and it was kind of before COVID, before it really kind of exploded into what it is right now. And I have always had a difficult time making myself leave the house and go to the gym. I just don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy anything about the gym I don't really know what I'm doing, which is probably part of the problem. Totally. And I've had some friends that had recently gotten Pelotons. And I said, that's probably something that I could get into. You know, I I like the sense of community, but being by myself. And I think if I see it in my living room every day, I'm going to use it. My husband, however, said, you quit everything you start. Don't (laughs) spend all this money on this stupid bike that you're never going to use. And I got home from work one day. It was cold outside. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to do it. And I bought it and I said, you know, pay for it now and ask for forgiveness later. It delivered about a week later. And then the entire country shut down, or at least Texas shut down. Wow. And my husband couldn't go to the gym anymore. So all of a sudden, he started riding the Peloton. And guess who rides it every single day now? (laughs)
0: And now he says, in
1: retrospect, he, he had never been a cycler or anything like that, but because of playing football, his knees and back are bad and he can't run and he can't, you know, do a lot of the things that you do when you work out from home. We don't have weights at home. So he has actually found a lot of therapy in the Peloton. There are Facebook groups out there that I follow that give me accountability. You know, there's challenges and teams you can be on and it's fun to sign in and sign on to the bike and ride with people from all over the country that you don't really know but you kind of feel like you know (laughs) and especially if you're on a team you know that motivates me to be accountable to ride at least three times a week or four times a week because I don't want to let my team down
0: Wow, that's really a thing. That's so cool.
1: Yeah, it really is a thing. You know, there's classes for everybody. I did um, a Hamilton Broadway ride class a couple weeks ago that was kind of cool. And, you know, a 90s hip-hop class or, you know, you can take scenic rides down the California coastline if you want to. It's just kind of a little something for everybody and you can find your little community. And and it's really been a, a kind of a lifesaver during the this
0: pandemic. <laughs> Oh, that's so interesting. I love that just Perry turned the tables on it. And now, now he can never be mad at you for getting the Peloton.
1: I mean, totally. He was so mad at me for probably a month or so after we got it, you know, and like I said, he definitely uses it more than I do. And especially working from home, it gives him something to do during the day as well to kind of get some frustrations out or you know, just stay active. He loves to be active.
0: There's so much to talk to you about. And I feel like you keep bringing up little things that I definitely want to ask about. Your pandemic situation is interesting because you're the one who has to go to work. No questions asked. There's no working from home for you. And Perry's been at home and he was for a really long time at home with Addie all day working from home, just flipping your family dynamic.
1: Yeah, it it has definitely been interesting. Perry was uh, used to traveling, you know, and going to dinners and taking clients out for, you know, happy hours and that sort of stuff and going to the office all day, every day. Pre 2020, you know, I was only working three days a week. So I was home a lot. Um, So I had a lot of time at home with Addie. So you're right, everything kind of got completely flipped, because now I took a new job in 2020. And now I work Monday to Fridays. I am, I am at the office every day and Perry is the one kind of getting her ready for school and taking her to school. When daycare shut down for about a month and a half, you're right. He was kind of here with her trying to work and juggle that. Sometimes I think it gave him maybe a little bit more of appreciation for what I would do with her on my days off at home. Now, although I wasn't juggling work at the same time, but he saw what it's like to kind of be a, a quote, stay at home mom for a little while. <laughs>
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so tell everybody what you do. So
1: I am a pediatric nurse practitioner. I work at uh, Medical City Children's Hospital here in <laughs> Dallas and I work in the pediatric cardiology department. Um specifically the heart surgery department. So I work with two fantastic surgeons, Dr. Christine Gillisarian and Dr. Javier Brenes, and we do, you know, heart surgery on babies that are day of life one, (laughs) all the way up to um, 18 or sometimes even older, if they are kind of an older person who had a heart defect as a baby, but still needs surgery as an adult. Kind of what I'm doing right now is I do a lot of the pre and post-op visits with the families, education, um, kind of about what their child's surgery is going to entail. Um, But then I'm also in the hospital because I go into the OR with the surgeons and I update the families throughout the surgery to let them know how their child's doing in surgery. And then we make rounds in the ICU and follow up on the patients post-operatively to make sure they're doing okay and make sure the ICU is, you know, doing their job and taking care of the patients and, you know, just making sure that everybody
0: is working towards the same goal of getting these, these fragile kids home. Your role is so important because you're, you know, dealing with the medical stuff, but like almost more importantly, being like a patient advocate and a patient communicator with these families. I mean, and it's not just any patient, it's children.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, our program model is a little bit different than some of the other programs that I've worked for, because what we want to try to do is make parents feel at ease. And one thing that you can do, I think, to help with that is to give them a constant faith that they trust. And so what we try to do is be their first point of contact from the beginning with the diagnosis, whether it's meeting the mom for the fetal diagnosis before the baby is born with a consult, or if they're postnatally diagnosed after the baby is born, you know, kind of introducing ourselves to them early and then staying with them through their entire hospital course. So while they're in the hospital, actually being their point of contact during surgery, and then still being a familiar face that they see on a daily basis after surgery until they go home. Really establishing those relationships because it's a very complex topic. And even people who are medically trained don't always understand the anatomy that some of these kids have. So trying to explain it to a family that has no medical background and may not even speak English as their first language or speak English at all. You know, it's really nice to have Um, someone who can try to explain it to them in more layman's terms to help them understand their child's diagnosis so that they know how to take care of them when they get home. Because that's that's what we really want is for parents to understand what's going on with their child so they can
0: become advocates for their child. So we're talking about, in some cases, moms who have gotten pregnant during a pandemic, who are worried about their Mm -hmm. own health during a pandemic, and then get a diagnosis that their child may need more help. During a pandemic. I mean, Mm -hmm. talk about stress upon stress upon stress. Yeah, and
1: then not even being able to have necessarily the support while their child is in the hospital that they need. There are a lot of visitation restrictions still in hospitals today, and we're lucky that in our hospital, our hospital recognizes the value of having parents there to have these difficult conversations and these complex conversations. So they do let both parents spend time with the child, and they let one parent, at least one parent, stay in the patient's room with them kind of 24-7. Um, But there's a lot of places where that isn't true, and it's really hard to explain something pretty complicated to a mom or a dad and then have them try to explain it to their spouse or to the rest of the world about what's going on with their child. Um, So that adds an entire another level of
0: stress that you know a lot of people don't necessarily take into consideration so given just the timing of taking this new job do you think it was a good thing that this new opportunity came just in time or did it complicate things or um, for me personally i
1: think it was it came just at the right time i was working mostly night shift before in my previous job um, i was working as an icu nurse practitioner I, I really enjoy this job that I'm doing right now. I enjoy the kind of Monday to Friday, nine to five type gig. I do think um, I get to see uh, my daughter Addison more because um, I can see her a little bit in the morning. I have a lot more flexibility in this schedule. So
0: that definitely helps. So, I mean, potentially had you not switched jobs, would you be working in a COVID unit in the ICU? And
1: Luckily, no. Okay, because um, you my... were still on
0: the kid's side?
1: Yeah, my certification with my, my licensure, my nurse practitioner licensure is just for pediatrics. So I'm not in, in, at least in the state of Texas and and most, probably most states, I'm not licensed to take care of adults in the same way. Okay. Um, And because these patients with uh, congenital heart defects are so fragile, they really don't want people cross training and going and working in a COVID unit, potentially picking it up and then bringing it back to such a delicate population.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But you did reach a bit of a milestone as a healthcare worker. You did get the vaccine. I did. I've
1: gotten round one. I will pick up round two um, later this month at the end of January. I think I have to wait about four weeks before I can get the second, the second dose. Um, you know, honestly, it was a little arm soreness. And that was about it. It wasn't, in my opinion, that big of a deal. Um, but it's just one step that we can take to, to get life hopefully somewhat back to normal either this year or early next year. I would love for my daughter to be able to go to a restaurant and not have to put a mask on. You know, I would love for myself to be able to go shopping and not have to make three trips back to the car because I, <laughs> I forgot my mask or I forgot her mask. But right now it's, we're doing what we have to do to, to protect
0: the communities and protect those that are most at risk. What are your thoughts on some of the vaccine hesitation? I mean, obviously, you've probably heard of that, you know, even before the COVID situation started with parents and being worried about vaccines and kids and la 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 la. And so I don't know, what are your thoughts on people's hesitations?
1: I think that it's normal to have a fear of the unknown. I think that people probably this way when the smallpox vaccine came out or when the varicella vaccine came out or when any of these vaccines that we get um, as children came out, I think there was probably some initial fear. Um, I think, at least in talking to my husband, who is very fearful of getting the vaccine and who, at least at this point in time, I don't think has any desire to get the vaccine. When I talk to him, he just says, well, it hasn't been tested enough. We don't know what it's actually going to do. How do they make a vaccine that comes out so quickly? And I kind of thought that as well in the beginning of 2020, like if they came out with a vaccine in a month or two, I'd be a little bit skeptical about its effectiveness or what the potential side effects could be. But I do trust the CDC and I do trust, you know, the government agencies that have worked tirelessly to fund the research to put this vaccine in place. And I don't think that they would release it. Out to the public if it wasn't something that was safe and that they felt was going to be effective. You know, some people say, well, how did it get done so quickly? You know, we can't cure cancer and we can't have a vaccine for HIV, but you know, you can come out with a vaccine in less than a year. Well, my answer to that is that the entire world was working on one thing with essentially unlimited resources. You know, we've never had that before. We've never had the entire world come together with the smartest scientists and medical people, all for the same cause. So I think it just shows you that when you have unlimited resources and everybody working towards one common goal, that you're going to produce results.
0: It's interesting that Perry is in a home with a medical professional and has nerves and hesitations. And I say that as someone who also has nerves and hesitations about it, sure. mostly because, um, and Turner feels the same way, mostly because we feel like we're not high-risk people. So we wonder what the benefits are. If we were to get it, we'd most likely be fine. So what's the purpose then for like, someone like me, who doesn't have a lot of contact with high-risk people and such like that, to? get a vaccine.
1: You know, I think that this is a virus that obviously we are still learning a lot about. We will continue to learn a lot about, but for me personally, I got it to protect the people around me. You know, I have aging parents that I want to be able to see. And so if getting, and and my parents don't live near me, it's a plane right away. So I'm putting myself at risk by having to get on a plane to go see them. So, do I pick something up on the plane and then, those first couple of days when I'm asymptomatic, pass it to one of them who are relatively healthy and will probably get through it? But you just never know. You know, you hear these stories of, you know, a healthy 24 year old catching the virus and dying with no previous risk factors. I just don't want to be responsible for that. I don't want to be responsible for exposing maybe even someone I don't know in the grocery store who gets it and gives it to their elderly parents. You know, I just, that's the part that makes me nervous more than anything. I don't want to carry that guilt. You know, I don't think you can condemn people for not getting it because as long as they're making their decision on the research that they have done, you know, you shouldn't make your decision on, you know, quote, false news or, you know, misguided uh articles or something like that that you read on the internet. But if you go to, you know, reliable resources and you read them and you still decide that you don't want to you don't want to get the vaccine, then that is your choice as an American to not get it. Mm-hmm. But wear your mask and <laughs> limit your interactions with people until at least the bulk of the pandemic is over.
0: Right. When that will be, gosh, I would love to know. My know. So it's a little late in the conversation, but I guess I should say that you and I know each other because our husbands are best friends. Yes. And um, <laughs> so Turner <laughs> and Harry have known each other since college. They both uh, played football at Western Illinois, and so they've been best buds basically ever since. So that's how you and I met. Yes, they
1: are two peas in a pod.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Turner misses Perry so much. So, so much. And so you and I kind of bonded, I would say, because we both realized that at the same time, we were trying to start families and we both were realizing that it wasn't working out the way that we planned and for different reasons. And this was going on at the same time and I I sort of remembered back on it the other day because I found a picture of Turner and myself and our dog next to the Christmas tree. (laughs) I remember it was taken on New Year's Eve 2015. Mm -hmm. So it was about to be 2016. Earlier that day, Perry had called and said you were pregnant. Yes. And because you and I had known each other's struggles, we knew, and I think we had even talked about the fact that one of us was going to get pregnant first. Yes. And we both were acknowledging of the fact that like somebody, somebody it would happen to first and the other family might be hurt.
1: Yeah, and sad. Do you remember that period of time? I do absolutely. How could I forget it? We come up to visit you guys, and you and I had a lot of conversations about where we were in our, you know, fertility journey. Yeah. <laughs> and we did have a conversation, just acknowledging that, just like you said, one of us was hopefully going to be pregnant at some point in time, and the other family was going to be happy and sad at the same time. It was yeah. going to be a very Very uh, bittersweet kind of reveal, and I do think I think Turner called Perry that day, and Perry thought that Turner was going to tell him that we that you guys were pregnant, and so that's why Perry said we're we're pregnant. Yeah, (laughs) but we were only about a week into knowing we were pregnant at the time, so I I remember it very clearly.
0: I remember, you know, we took that picture, and I remember like, okay, the three of us were going into, you know, the third being the dog, and we're going to go into, you know, 2016, and, you know, it's been a rough couple years before that, and then, you know, we heard your news, and obviously we were elated, but we were, you know, kind of, you know, bittersweet, like you said. Funny thing is, is in that picture... I had no idea that I was also pregnant. (laughs) You know, it was literally like, it probably had happened like five days prior, you know, if you're doing the math. But but I look at that picture every time and and I think, holy crap, like we had no idea that it was also happening for us. And so our kids are a month apart in age. Yes, it was so amazing because
1: I remember it was, you know, three or four weeks later later, Turner calls Perry and says, guess what? We're pregnant too. And I don't think I had been more happy. I was so excited for you guys because there was a part of me that felt a little bit guilty at that time, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's just, you want to be happy and you want to share the news, especially with, you know, Perry wanted to share all of it with Turner, you know, but you didn't want to kind of rub your face in it or, or make you feel like, failures, you know, or, mm-hmm. or whatever that feeling is. So when you told me you were pregnant, I was like, oh, we can just talk about this all the time now. <laughs> it's almost like a sense of relief. So.
0: Well, because we were both having these fertility issues, but for two very different reasons. Yes. So what was going on with you guys at that time?
1: Perry and I had kind of decided in 2015 that we would try to start having
0: children or, you know, and
1: had never had any infertility issues in my family or his family. And so I was finishing up grad school that year and we just kind of felt like the timing was right. We had, we had done all the things we wanted to kind of do with our careers and we bought a house and we had the dog and now it was finally time to have a child. And I came off of birth control in March and I never had a period after that, which, you know, is a little unusual. Um, and so that summer I started having these hot flashes that my mom would describe when she was going through menopause and I went and saw my private practice doctor and he told me that it was just my body readjusting to, you know, being on hormones for such a long time and just to keep an eye on it. And so I graduated, um, with my nurse practitioner degree in August. And then in September or October, I think it was, I went and saw, my OBGYN for my regular evaluation and was telling her about these hot flashes. And so she did some blood work uh, that came back indicating that I was essentially in menopause. And so she recommended us that week to see a fertility specialist here in Dallas. So I went and had a consult with him and we did a whole bunch of other lab work as you well know, when you're going through the infertility journey, they <laughs> they test you for just about everything. Um, but in doing that lab work, it revealed that I am a carrier for Fragile X syndrome, which I didn't know about before and nobody in my family that we know of had has Fragile X or was a carrier before me. Um, and interestingly, people who are carriers for Fragile X, about 20% of women who carry it can develop this fragile X associated premature ovarian insufficiency. Um, And so at least I had a reason for why I was kind of going through this early menopause. My body had kind of in a way attacked my ovaries and attacked my eggs. So I, I had no eggs left, (laughs) but there is a a small percent of people who can still get pregnant. And so that's why they call it insufficiency, not a, failure. It's one of those devastating kind of diagnoses, because if you don't have your own eggs, then you can't have your own baby with your own DNA. So Perry and I did a lot of discussion about, you know, what is this going to look like for us as a family? Do we not have kids? Do we use a donor egg and Perry's sperm um, to have a kid that's half his and half somebody else's? Do I want to carry that kid? You know, for me, selfishly, Um, it was kind of hard for me to want to be pregnant and kind of go through all of this. And it's still not, it it would be my baby, but not my baby genetically. So then we started talking about adoption and and all sorts of other, other avenues, um, that you can kind of go down. And in doing that, somehow we got pregnant on our own. (laughs) I remember coming home from the doctor's office. We just found out that we had this fragile X diagnosis. Um, and I came home and I was crying on the sofa by myself. And Perry had gone, to, gone back to work after leaving the doctor's office. And I had a really weird pain in my lower back on one side. And I said to myself, self, are you ovulating? <laughs> I've been begging for some kind of sign forever. Um, Perry came home from work that day. We were both just emotionally drained. And I said, I think I'm ovulating. And he looked at me and said, I think you're crazy. <laughs> Three hours ago, we left the doctor's (laughs) office and he told me you had no eggs. You can't ovulate. And I said, but I really think I'm ovulating. You know, come on, we have to have sex tonight.
0: (laughs) Ooh, that sounds really, really sexy.
1: And he said, Casey, I'm tired. And I just, (laughs) no. And I said, what if this is our one chance? What if this is someone greater than us telling us that we can have a kid? And um, he told me I was crazy again, but he obliged. Um, (laughs) poor guy. And then the the next night for good measure, I made him have sex with me a second time.
0: Um, and horrible wife, terrible, unbelievable. All the conditions that you have set over there. I mean, you,
1: yes. Um, and then three weeks later we were getting ready to go home and see my family for Christmas. And I know that my mom and I like to drink a lot of wine together. And before then I said, what if I'm pregnant? And I just randomly took a pregnancy test and it came back positive. And I think I almost passed out on the floor (laughs) and Perry was at work and I called him and he didn't answer the phone. He screened my call. And so I called him right back and his boss was in his office and looked at him and said, you might want to answer that. Your wife's called twice. And um, I wanted to make it a surprise, but I just couldn't. I was too excited, confused. I don't even know all the adjectives I could use to describe what I was feeling that day, but had my blood drawn twice and, you know, luckily had a very, very healthy pregnancy. And now I have a four-year-old little girl who's absolutely amazing.
0: So, um, Um, well, I'm going to back you up just a little bit. Um, so you mentioned that, like that internal struggle of like, Would I want to carry a child that would be not genetically mine? And, you know, people have criticized this podcast before because they feel like I don't acknowledge all the different ways that you can get pregnant and all the, you know, and, and, you know, to that, I would just say like, everyone has a story and I'm getting to, and I'm getting to all of them. So (laughs) like, you know, telling one doesn't mean that another doesn't exist. Yes, not acknowledging it. So, um, but bottom line is, these are all the thoughts that go through your head. And I think we have to be honest that those thoughts exist. And that doesn't make doesn't make anybody a bad person or that you would love a child any less or something. It's just it's a reality of thinking about bringing a child into the world.
1: It is. And you know, we're so lucky that medicine has you know given us so many different ways to conceive children if you want them the the doctor really suggested that we use you know donor eggs and and like i said selfishly i think that's so great i think it's so great for so many women for me personally you know i felt i felt kind of jaded you know i felt why does my husband get to <laughs> have a kid that's half his, but not half mine. Even though I know that if we had gone that route, it would have been mine. I would have carried it. And you know, that in itself, you know, is, is a joy and magical and and how that can happen. But there was a part of me that said, well, if we have to use a donor egg, can't we just use donor sperm too? You know, and then you start thinking about all of those possibilities. And then it's like, well, why do I want to be pregnant? and go through the nausea and the tiredness and the, you know, the pains of labor, if it's not my DNA or his DNA, then we might as well just adopt and give a beautiful home to a kid who really needs one. Cause it's kind of the same thing genetically. Right. So there were a lot of things that we really struggled with and we really, you know, had never thought we were going to have these conversations as a couple. And we just had to be honest with ourselves about what we really felt in our heart, because you can't bring a child into this world, whatever way you choose to do it. If you haven't been honest with your partner about
0: how you're honestly feeling in that situation. I a hundred percent think that's true. And I'm I'm digging back into four years of memory, but like, did you guys start IVF or look into it or weren't you about to do a retrieval or attempt a retrieval? Yeah, so we hadn't made it to retrieval.
1: Um, We had had conversations. We had met with the fertility specialist a couple of times, um, and he was fantastic. But what he said is that for our case, because I don't have eggs, you kind of have to have eggs to do IVF, right? So they they give you all the hormones and the injections, and it's supposed to put your ovaries in super drive and, and produce a whole lot of follicles so that they can go do retrieval but your body is only born with a certain number of eggs. So if your egg base is low or non-existent, it doesn't matter how many hormones you put into your body, you're not gonna be able to generate those follicles for retrieval. And so he said, which is why he was suggesting egg donation because he told us there's a a less than 1% chance that you can go through all of this IVF and these injections And we're going to do the ultrasounds of your ovaries and you're not going to have any eggs in there for retrieval. And you've paid all this money for this procedure. That's not, that's just not going to work. Um, And then when we came back with the fragile X diagnosis, he said, okay, so if by some miracle we're able to get, I think they wanted at least three follicles before they would do a retrieval. If we're able to get that, and then you go through the, you know, introducing the sperm to turn them in into embryos, you know, not very many of those embryos just in general survive. Um, And you probably have poor egg quality. So your chances of your follicles or eggs turning into embryos is pretty low. But then now we're going to genetically test it and make sure that the embryo doesn't carry fragile eggs because they didn't want to transfer an embryo that was going to have a genetic abnormality. And so he said, your 1% chance is now like less than a half of a percent chance, if even that. He said, I'm never going to tell you it's zero, but it's as close to zero as you can get. You know, I'm a medical person. I totally understand statistics. And I give families, you know, genetic counseling and kind of statistics all the time. Um, but when it's you, you look at it through a completely different lens. And so I told Perry that I'm always going to wonder if... We could have had a kid, but I'm always going to wonder, so we're going to have to try. But the day that we were supposed to order the medications, that's kind of the day that we, towards that time we found out we were pregnant. So we never actually did any injections. We never actually did any fertility treatments. We were lucky, <laughs> very, very lucky um, to conceive naturally.
0: So does being a medical professional at this time make it easier because you understand so much more or is it harder because you understand so much more? I think it's probably harder because I understand so much more. Uh, It definitely made me
1: scared. Um, When we actually got pregnant, I was very scared during my pregnancy about what that meant for us. Um, I know a lot of people aren't very familiar with fragile X syndrome and kind of what it is and what it does, but in, in layman's terms, it can it it mirrors autism um, and kind of how I've read about it. And it can run on a spectrum from mild severity to severe symptoms of either, you know, poor eye contact or uh, inability to kind of function in, in, in today's world and in, in daily life. And it affects boys more than girls. A lot of times girls can kind of be more on the asymptomatic side of the spectrum and boys can be, they can have a severe intellectual disability. Um, so for me, that just made me very nervous, you know, again, being a healthcare professional, I know what it's like to, I've seen families, you know, struggle and taking care of children with chronic needs um, and that's just a very tough thing to do. And I give, you know, so much kudos to, to the moms and the dads out there that, that lived that, that life every single day. If we, you know, had found out we were pregnant with a boy, we would have done an amniocentesis to find out kind of what that future meant for us. Um, they can tell it on an amniocentesis. Um, since girls are less likely to be affected or to have any kind of clinical symptoms, we chose not to do that. And so far, daughter is is developing normally and and is healthy. Um, But she could be a carrier like me. And down the road, she could face the same infertility issues that I face. We will eventually have her blood tested for it. But I want her to be old enough to kind of make that decision before we do.
0: Well, yeah, that was a period of time, though, when you had a tremendous amount of fear about, you know, like, yay, I'm pregnant. I don't know how this happened. Um, (laughs) But now I have this other worry. And that's, if it's a boy or a girl, because they mean two different things, potentially.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Perry really wanted to wait until uh, the baby was born to find out the sex of the baby. And in any other situation, if it didn't mean, um, if, if the weight of the gender didn't mean anything, I would have waited too. I mean, what a fun surprise to find out. I know that's what you guys have done. Um but I just couldn't do that. I had to prepare myself mentally for the possibility of having a special needs child. And so I, I had to find out the sex as soon as possible so that we could, you know, start to prepare for that if needed.
0: Well, and Addie, you know, she ended up being a girl and she's so sweet and such a such a blessing, I know. How do you how do you to this day wrap your head around the miracle? that happened there? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't know that I've wrapped my head around it. I really,
1: I don't think I have. Um, You know, as soon as I, we, we didn't go back on birth control after having Addie, just on the off chance that maybe my ovaries were going to be excited and we could have another kid again, knowing the same fear and risks would happen with another pregnancy. But you know, I, I've pretty much gone right back into menopause and haven't had a period in four years. So I think, I think we're done. (laughs) Um, but I just feel incredibly blessed. You know, families always ask you, so when are you going to have another kid? Addie needs a sibling. And obviously these are people who don't understand, you know, the journey that we've been on, but I just tell them, you know, when you're told you can't have any, and you're not going to have any that are going to have any part of your DNA. When you get one, you feel like you've won the the lottery and she's happy and she's healthy and she's funny and she's smart and she's all the adjectives you use to describe your own child I'm sure some people would disagree (laughs) but but I just feel so lucky I, I try to tell at least my story to anybody who will listen around me. A lot of people are shy about talking about their fertility issues. But if it gives, you know, hope to one person who's kind of receiving the same diagnosis or going through the same thing or questioning the same, you know, how am I going to do this? Or what am I going to do? Or, you know, is this going to be able to happen for me? You know, there are stories out there
0: that should give you some hope. Mm -hmm. Well, and another, you know, cool thing to come out of this is Addie is going to go into her childbearing years with so much more information, you know, (laughs) and and that's so important because at the end of the day, you're a lot like me where we, I don't know, I don't even want to say it, we were older, you know what I mean, because we both were pursuing a career, but we're both over 30. And so Mm -hmm. when these issues come up, and now you're over 30, Really feel like holy smokes, TikTok. If I had known, what would I have done differently two years ago?
1: Sure. I mean, we spent so much time like trying to be professional women and make sure that everything was lined up and be responsible and you know make sure that whatever child we brought into this world was going to have a good, stable home. Yeah. Um, I don't know what year in my life my ovaries failed because of you know birth control. Control is an amazing blessing for so many people. However, (laughs) when your body is going through premature ovarian insufficiency, you know, you're kind of led to believe that there's not a problem until you stop taking these medications. And so that's a scary time, especially when you wait, like you said, to have kids a little bit later it's kind of a bad time to find out that you might've missed your window. It could have been last year. It could have been 10 years ago. You, you just don't know. And so that's, you know, some guilt that I carry with me, but at the same time I wasn't ready for a child then. So no. I have to put that behind me and remind myself that, you know, things have worked out the way they were
0: supposed to. <laughs> I know we've had, we've had a couple conversations that was like, if we had known, would we have started two years earlier? And I'm like, No, we like, we were, we were not in that place, you know, and, and it's like, you have to stand by the timing of your life and the way that you decided things.
1: Yeah. And like you said, you know, I'm glad that I know now, and when Addie is a teenager and she's old enough to kind of have some of these conversations, you know, we'll have her blood tested and we'll see if she's a carrier or not. Um, She may be in the 80% that doesn't have premature ovarian insufficiency, but we won't, that, that piece of it, we just, we won't. No, until much later in life, almost maybe when it's too late. So we'll give her the option of having her eggs frozen so that when she's ready to have a child, hopefully that that will be available to her.
0: Yeah. Talk about like a gift to the next generation to be able to have, have so much information to make their decisions on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing I think about when I look back on that time of you and I both being pregnant at the beginning of 2016 is the Zika virus was the big thing oh, at the God. time. <laughs> Almost I forgot about to, that. Yeah, <laughs> we were supposed to go to Mexico. Um, that was my um, Christmas gift and so we canceled yeah. that trip to Mexico and instead we baby mooned with you guys in Texas which ended up yes. being, which ended up being such a fantastic time. So all worked out, but when you think about the scare that was Zika and you compare the pandemic wow. It's like, I remember thinking Zika was a big, big deal. And obviously like being pregnant was different, but
1: Gosh. It was a big deal. I mean, I think that every virus that comes out is a big deal until the next scary virus comes out. Because Zika is still around. It didn't go away. You right. know,
0: but we, we just have found other things to talk about. <laughs> oh, gosh, so many other things. Speaking of other things, how have you been coping with the idea of potentially Kim and Kanye getting divorced? Are you doing okay with that?
1: <laughs> is that even a thing? <laughs>
0: I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's not looking good for the West family right now. You know
1: what? It's not looking good for the West family, but you know, (laughs) they're both a little bit crazy. So (laughs) it's probably for the best.
0: (laughs) Well, we just went through a whole year of where everyone's just been watching all these celebrity couples break up and you know, it's like another quarantine breakup, another quarantine breakup. And yeah, it's just, it's been interesting because it seems to be plaguing the celebrity world, but I don't know if it's really plaguing the real, the real world.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know that celebrities spend a whole lot of time together, (laughs) you know, probably one's, you know, on tour or someone's, I don't know, making a movie. So when you're actually forced to live in close quarters with somebody for extended periods of time, it does kind of bring out the ugly. So, you know, from a celebrity standpoint, it doesn't. Doesn't surprise me a whole lot, but it is, it is very challenging, you know, Perry's working from home now and that is a big shift. Like we talked about a little bit earlier in our, in our, um, our family dynamics and just trying to, I have to realize that, you know, he's not ever able to get out of the house. He's here from the minute he wakes up, his computer is downstairs, you know, work is even more available to him than it was before when it was just the cell phone. And he doesn't get kind of a break to to go out into the world and and mingle with people and, and have different conversations and, and all that sort of stuff like I do. I get to leave every day and I get some downtime to drive home and clear my head. And, and all of that's kind of been taken away from him. He goes straight from work to home <laughs> and it's all kind of blended together. Um, and that can make things a little bit challenging sometimes. Yeah, um, totally. I, definitely had our fair share of of um disagreements or our fair share of just honest conversations about you know what this is going to look like for our family and trying to to be respectful of each other's time and space and we also got a puppy during the pandemic which sounded like a great idea at the time <laughs> <laughs> that might and not have been, that me. might not have been as good of an idea as the peloton but <laughs> <laughs> but we're working through that too. You know, the puppy's great, but um, I go to work every day and I leave Perry at home with the puppy to to deal with the puppy and to work. And when we had our older dog, Sadie, when she was a puppy, she was in the crate all day when we went to work and came home. So, you know, it's, it's another added layer of stress that I put on his plate that, you know, in retrospect, like I said, might not have been the best idea, but we're working through that too. So (laughs)
0: say vie. I would say that it was a little challenging for us that I was working from home for a time and mm-hmm. sometimes and cause our kids were still going to daycare. And so I think sometimes it's hard not to feel like the person who's at home must not be doing anything must just yeah. be like enjoying themselves. And so we've kind of faced a little bit of like that resentment of like, well, it must be nice to be home all day. And I'm like, well, yes, I'm home, but, But. you know, yeah, yeah.
1: I, you know, I know Perry works when he is at home. That's actually, you know, I do get these, I do get a day off during the week, you know, and I can see him home, but it is ironic that the days that I'm home are the days he can take a nap in the middle of the day (laughs) or (laughs) shop on the internet, on the computer, (laughs) even though he tells me he's so busy. I'm just giving him a hard time. He, he does work hard and, you know, it's even he works in the insurance industry and he does a lot of oil and gas and that sort of stuff. And a lot of the businesses that he helps write insurance for are going out of business, you know, so that's also putting a whole nother level of, of stress. Yes. We're both blessed to have a job. I am so lucky that, you know, we are, we are both still, still working because so many families, you know, lost that. Um, and I try to remind him of that all the time when he's having a bad day at work, you know.
0: But we are still working, and we still have a job. So yeah, I've had a couple conversations with friends recently that are like, you know, sometimes you just don't talk about the things in marriage that are difficult, and yeah. it feels a little isolating. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and so in these private conversations I've had with friends, it's like I sometimes I just want to hear that like you guys are mad at each other too, <laughs> you know. Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: just come be a fly in the wall at my house we're mad at each other all the time whether
0: it's the dog or
1: work or you know yeah and, and how we're disciplining our daughter you know this this year in itself is has been challenging for a lot of people obviously it's cha- i think it's challenging for everybody I don't know anybody that has said you know what i've really just enjoyed this pandemic and i've really just enjoyed you know everything that it's it's brought to us i think that you know we just all have to realize that everybody is under a different amount of stress and pressure from whether it's parenting, whether it's, you know, having to homeschool your child. I'm so thankful we don't have to do that. I'm so thankful Addie's daycare is open because Perry would have to be the one to make sure that she's sitting there doing her assignments. And how do you get a kindergartner to do digital assignments through an iPad? One, I'm trying to keep the iPad away from her, not lock her in front of it for, you know, five or six hours a day to do kindergarten. <laughs> and it would be impossible for Perry to work and try to ensure that she's doing her kindergarten tasks. So I'm I'm really thankful that <laughs> she is the age that she is right now.
0: Oh, I've said that so many times, so many times. Mm-hmm. This Yeah, a pandemic is not made for the working family.
1: No, it's definitely not. It, when you're going through a pandemic, if you've had you know, certain issues in your marriage that you've probably, you know, haven't been able to resolve, they just kind of become even bigger under the microscope, because you're both kind of there. And I think a lot of times you say a lot of things that you don't mean to say, this is really just another one of those things that tests you in your marriage, and you're going to have them all the time, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's you know, a uh, health diagnosis that you are struggling to deal with or whether it's <laughs> getting a new puppy that's crazy. You know, <laughs> there's always gonna be something that's gonna put a little bit more more stress on on the bond that you have. And kind yeah. of how you are able to work through it. I think that's important. And and we're still we're still working through it. You know, there's totally. some things that up. And I'm like, I just don't know that I can do this anymore. I really just don't know whether it's the pandemic, whether it's us. And that's where it gets a little bit muddy and confusing. You know, is it, is it situationally, you know, the reason that that things are so tough right now? Is it just this situation? Or is it something more than that? And that's, you know, where, again, communication comes comes into into play. Barry and I've had a lot of conversations about that, you know, about how we're dealing with this and and what we're going to do to ensure that we're going to make it through to the other side. Cause I think we're both committed to that. It's just finding the best way to do it without killing
0: each other in the process. (laughs) Yeah. Any advice or or tricks that have worked for you guys to kind of reconnect right now? Well, you know, we actually went and met with a counselor,
1: um, because it wasn't that things were really bad. It was that I personally didn't want things to get really bad. Sure. And I felt like it was more important for us to start that conversation, you know, and get either better communication tips or better parenting tips or better, you know, even if it's just airing out your grievances and in, in a quote, safe space with the phone put away for an hour to like a neutral mediator. Um, I just thought that was going to be important before you show up up and you're already saying like, I want a divorce and I hate you. You know, I I don't, I didn't want to get there. Yeah. Um, One thing that he suggested that I thought was really interesting um, and we're still kind of trying to find what our thing is going to be, but it was to do one thing to connect with each other every single day, whether it's, you know, when the other person gets home from work, you know, uh, an actual hug and a kiss undistracted. Or he gave the example that one family, you know, puts the kids to bed and the husband and wife have one glass of wine every night. And they just talk about, you know, the high and low of their day, finding that one unity, that one thing that connects you both together every single day and making it a habit or like a ritual. And he says what it does is it just keeps you connected and it keeps you from going your separate ways all the time. Cause it yeah. doesn't have to be anything big. It doesn't have anything to be anything that takes a lot of time, but it's just one thing that's kind of unique to the two of you
0: that can keep you, like I said, more connected. Yeah. So you're still working on finding that thing. Well, it's
1: just, just uh, yes.
0: <laughs> hey, that's fine.
1: You know, we, it's, I just, you know, you want it to be something unique. Like, you know, walking in the door and just giving a kiss hello doesn't seem to be something that's super, you know, unique. But um, just trying to find something that, that, we really want to, to commit to.
0: Yeah. Intentional, intentional. intentional. Things. Yeah. Intentional
1: yeah. time between the two of you.
0: Yeah. I remember before we got married, I, I said like, why can't we go to counseling before it's scary? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like absolutely. Like life happens and you just never have, you know, and you never want to wait until suddenly it's scary to go.
1: Yeah. And I think counseling is one of those things that can be so taboo, right? People think totally. that if you're, Counseling, it means that something's wrong and it doesn't always mean that something's wrong. It just may mean that you're not communicating well. Yeah. You know, maybe the way that you're explaining something isn't getting through to somebody else because they're not paying attention or they have something else on their mind. But what I found that the counseling did was give us just like I said, an hour of quiet time together to actually talk about some of the things that were bothering us, especially during this pandemic. You know, he felt that I didn't understand how stressful his day was. And I felt that he didn't understand how stressful it was to me to still be going back to work and then come home and have to take care of everything at at home. You know, I was still going to work, but then I was still coming home and, you know, walk in the door and cook dinner and then, you know, feed the dogs and then give Addy a bath and then put Addy to bed while he was able to relax and watch TV. You know, part of me was like, you're home all day, (laughs) cook dinner every now and then. But that's kind of an unrealistic expectation for me. You know, that had always been my role. So why should the role change just because he's working from home now? You know, right. he's still working from, he's still working. So just kind of trying to open the air about why I was feeling that way and why he was feeling that way and trying to come up with some kind of mutual understanding to make things more smooth was where counseling kind of helped a little bit. Convincing my husband to go, you know, that's assuming that the man is going to say, he, Perry would say, there's no problem. We don't have to go. And I would say, I know, but I don't want there to be a problem. Yeah. That's, that's why we need to go. You know, you got to drop your preconceived notions about, you know, you're weak if you go to counseling or you're weak if you need to talk to somebody or your marriage is weak and that's why you need to go talk to somebody. I think it's actually your marriage is stronger if you recognize the fact that counseling and talking about things with, with somebody actually can make it better. (laughs) Yeah. It means you're yeah. Both, it actually means you're both committed, especially if you do it before you're like, at the I hate you stage. <laughs> totally. Difficult to come back from that. It's not if it's just minor things that are annoying you that you just need some clarity on.
0: Was there a certain way that you found a counselor that worked for you guys? Like, how do you even go about it? So I did, I did a lot of research into it. I knew Perry wasn't going to do a whole
1: lot of research into it when I suggested that we go. Um, but I tried to just read a lot of, um, i mean websites of different counselors and tried to read about their philosophies and their approaches because you have to find someone that's going to to mesh with you that you're going to feel comfortable talking to and that has kind of um not the same belief system as you necessarily but that felt like if i went to a woman that was about my age that perry might be defensive if she agreed with me so i tried to find a man and i tried to find an older guy because i didn't want like i wanted someone who had who seemed like they had experience, you know, and, and that sort of stuff. And so that's kind of how I ended up finding um, the guy that we met
0: with. I feel like it's important to note that like, by this time, we have been married for nine years together for 15. You guys are right up in that same area too, you know, where it's like, we're we're getting to the point where we've been almost together more than we've been not together, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I was, and, and yeah.
1: we've been through a lot this year, right? Like Perry's dad died and yes. in the middle of a pandemic. So we couldn't have a proper funeral and he couldn't, just felt like he was angry all the time. And I said, we got to find a reason for why you're angry. And if it's me, and you don't want to tell me, maybe you'll open up in counseling about something that I'm doing or, you right. know, and they was taking his dad died. And then a month later he had to take care of Addie and then, <laughs> business wasn't going well. And it was just so many things that made it a challenge. And I said, we just need to be together quietly without Addie and the dogs and family and phones and all of that stuff. We just kind of need to talk about some of this stuff. Otherwise, it's just going to build and explode and it's going to end up where we don't want it to be.
0: Yeah, so. that's actually probably a good point to make. I mean, the death of a parent is one of those things that's always said to to rock a foundation and understandably so.
1: Yeah. And especially during a pandemic, I mean, you, you know, only 10 people could get together at the church to lay him to rest. And that's pretty much just his siblings and his um, children and, and his ma- and his wife. You know, that was the only people that could be there. I didn't even go because I wasn't in the 10. I stayed back so that Dan's sister and brother could go. Cause if I went, it would put it to 11 people. And, um, I just felt like it was not my place to go, even though Dan and I had a very great relationship, you know, I didn't really get to say my official goodbye and none of his friends that he was close with in Iowa could come down and, and pay their respects to the family. And, you know, it's just, it, that was, that's, I mean, it's still, I mean, it hasn't even been a year yet, you know, it's, it's still really hard to kind of have to to deal with that. Plus he was so young when he died, (laughs)
0: but. Right any other time we would have come, you know, it's like, right. Like absolutely. Turner would have been there, you know? Yeah. April was kind of the peak where no one
1: really knew where this thing was going to go. So it was just so many unknowns. And I don't know how you deal with the loss of a parent because I haven't had to go through that. I've lost grandparents, but I haven't lost a parent yet. I have two healthy parents, you know, And, and I can't imagine what Perry was feeling when you lose your father, you know, at such a young age. Um, but it definitely adds yet another layer, you know, to the, to the mix of, of things that just feel completely out of control that you can't quite, quite grasp. So,
0: yeah, I think it's that out of control feeling that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is like the endless scrolling and the the lack of stillness because what do you what do you reach out to grab onto what feels solid in mm-hmm. a moment that's anything but, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, Casey, this has been a really good conversation. I feel like we need to end though on something. On something a little lighter, is there a funny Addie story that we can end on? Well, I did ask Addie, I
1: don't know if you saw it on Facebook, I asked Addie last night what she wanted to be when she grew up. Have you asked Abram that question yet?
0: Yeah, we've asked a couple of times. He always
1: says firefighter. Addie told me that she wanted to help the babies like I do. And I was like, oh my gosh, Addie, that is just the sweetest thing ever. I asked her last night on our drive home from school and then she goes, yeah, mommy, I want to rock them and I want to give them some milk and I want to give them some food. And then I want to put them back in their crate.
0: (laughs) Back in their crate.
1: And I said, are we talking about babies or puppies? (laughs) But she remembers, or she's seen pictures of her crib that had the rails on it, which is very similar to our dog crates. And so I think she thinks a crib and a crate are the same thing, but it was just entirely too cute. I was like, Oh, the words
0: of a (laughs) four-year-old. Oh God. That's so sweet though. I love that she knows what you do though too.
1: She's like, okay, mommy, I guess, I guess you can go take care of the babies. The babies need you more than I do.
0: (laughs) What a sweet girl. I know she has such a sweet heart. But. Yeah, I don't think Abram knows what I do for a living, although he um, he knows that he can watch me on the mommy show. He knows that. He's starting to choose favorites like out of my co-workers who he likes to watch, you know, like there's one meteorologist that he likes best. Um, and he's sad when, when Andrew's not on. But yeah, I don't think he understands why i'm on the mommy show or what that show entails but he does know that sometimes i attend meetings because for a while like i would have to be on a Zoom meeting
1: (laughs) yeah that's a hard concept to wonder why mommy's on tv did he get any cameos while you were doing your broadcasts from home oh
0: yes yeah from home he he was on on a a couple of occasions but he (laughs) i would say he threw more tantrums on the air than anything which people seem to really like But, you know, it's like when you try to tell somebody, you have to stand here and, and wait. And, you know, and he's like trying to watch himself on the TV that's right over here. And so there was a couple times when he like threw some major, some major fits. So Everett was much more cooperative, you know, because at the time he was, Like in the thick of it, he was just turning 18 months. And, you know, that's when they like learned to wave. And so he would just sit there and wave and people would be like, oh, this child.
1: Real life. And everybody loves real life. It makes them feel a little bit better about their parenting fails
0: well I really appreciate you talking to me today and for being so honest and um you guys are going to be fine we're going to be fine everybody's going to be we're, fine.
1: we're all going to make it through this together with one bottle of wine or one bag of potato chips or one peloton workout or one whatever it is you do
0: to get you through it but just don't get a puppy just don't get a yeah. puppy Casey Cox, thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast today. Casey is a great friend for all of the reasons that you just heard. She's honest and authentic, and she's knowledgeable, and she thinks things through, and she's a great person um, to have on your team. So thank you so much, Casey, for sharing your insight on so many different things today. So let's keep going with the Bachelorette recap. Okay, obviously, the big news of this episode was Queen Victoria. Jillian and I, in the last recap, didn't spend much time on her other than when Jillian called her a slop tart and officially became a star. Um <laughs> But Victoria is one of those people that comes right out of the gate and says, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here for the guy and blah, blah, blah. And it turns everybody off because that's not the way you would behave in normal life. You would never walk into a room and be determined to be the person that everybody dislikes. But that's reality TV. The thing, though, about Victoria is when I'm reading online comments, it almost seems like this type of villain is getting Beyond tired. It's one thing if a villain doesn't realize she's being a villain villain because she's being edited in a certain way or she lacks some level of self-awareness. But this villain, this Queen Victoria, is coming off so villainous that it's making people feel like she's just a producer plant. Like she was there for that purpose and that purpose only. Well, everybody on The Bachelor and Bachelorette is a producer plant. They knew Matt was not going to like her. I think they knew that she was never going to be one of his favorites. It's boring to me because no one wants women to treat each other this way. If we did, we watched watch The View, which is terrible programming. So people feel like she's so producer-planted and so producer-scripted that no one would actually want to come off that way. I don't know what uh, her aspirations are, but if you look on her Instagram, um, number one, she's had to disable commenting, which just means that people are being really terrible and wicked to her, which is so pointless, by the way. But she appears to own some sort of spray tanning and health coaching business down in Fort Lauderdale, and it's called Jet Set Glow. So I don't know if she's trying to be an actress or what her ultimate plans are, but... I don't know, just don't be a Victoria. I mean, not only do you need to read the room better that the way that you're coming off isn't great, but also just the way she forces herself on Matt. I think we all have said that we hate the double standard of a woman just throwing herself at the man when if a man behaved like that with a woman, we would say he was creepy and pushy and scary. And I think we say all of those things about her, but for some reason we... we, treat her more of a hot mess than we do treat her like a bit of a predator. Because, I mean, just the shoving of the garter on the leg and just the let me kiss you every second is just, it's, I don't know, it's gross. And it's also not why we watch the show. And so that's why these overproduced villains honestly have become boring to me. I don't know. It's not interesting to watch someone be humiliating. And that's what I think she is. I paused the episode because I wanted to see how long it would take for Matt to finally get a conversation with Abigail, who we saw in the first episode. He gave the first impression rose to her, and she was so sweet and wonderful, and they had this perfect banter, like the, the ideal kind of banter you would want to have with a guy that you just met and you know, spontaneously came across, and you're feeling each other out and trying to see if um, you make a connection, and they did automatically, and even in this second conversation that we saw. They have this natural energy and they're talking about a code that they can give to one another to show that the other is thinking of the other person. And so I just thought that was perfect and organic. And Abigail, Abigail is going to go very, very far in this show. We also saw, though, that he has a great connection with Brie. And they bonded over the absence of having a father in their lives. And what I like about him in this episode is I feel like he speaks very eloquently about his feelings for the women. And Charlene Joint, who was a contestant on Juan Pablo season. She now writes blogs um, about the show and does recapping and appears on a lot of podcasts. And what she always says is so true in this point. She says like when someone can actually explain why they like someone, it's so much better than what we saw Pilot Pete do, for example, or even Ari to some extent, where they just say like, wow, you're amazing. You know, I really like her because she's amazing. But they can't actually say what they like about her. I, in the last episode, questioned Matt's sincerity. I, we don't know enough about Matt just yet. We don't know um, how the rest of the season is going to shake out. But I feel like he's handling it really well. I want to see how this thing with the the Marianne or the Marilyn shakes out, the to be continued. By that point in the episode, I'll be real honest, I started cooking, doing things around my house because women-on-women women drama of that nature, it makes me really glad that I am 36 and over a lot of that noise in my life. So let me know what your thoughts are on this recap. It's going to be short today. So sorry about it. I'll get a guest to recap with me next week if there is more to talk about. And so that's where I will leave you for today. Hope you have a great weekend ahead. You have been listening to On a Mother Level, We Can Relate have been listening to the
1: WQAD Podcast Network.